I'm Anton Hellman. I'm Justin Morgenstern. And this is the Journal Jam Podcast. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the Institute nor medicine cases. TXA has been widely adopted as a miracle drug in emergency medicine, but there have been some highly publicized and somewhat controversial studies over the last few years, like the Woman Trial and the Crash 3. One of the major concepts we've discussed on the Journal Jam is that prior probability matters. When assessing a trial, your interpretation should be shaped by the science that's already available, right? Yes, exactly. So when I'm trying to figure out how to interpret a semi-controversial study, something like Crash 3, I find it's really helpful to take a deep dive into all of the available evidence on the topic, and so in this case, TXA. Right. So that's our goal here. We're going to look at all the different indications for TXA and review the available evidence. And this, we hope this is going to be valuable for each indication. So should you be using TXA for epistaxis, postpartum hemorrhage, hemoptysis? We'll look at the evidence for each one of those. But I think more importantly, at least in my eyes, is we want to get a broader understanding of this drug. Is TXA a miracle drug that cures everything? Or has it been drastically overhyped? Was Crash 2 enough to be definitive? Or does the classic EBM mantra of we need more studies remain true? So to help us understand TXA, we have a special guest on Journal Jam, the man from VSGEM, EBM guru, one of the hardest working FOMED creators out there, the one and only Ken Milne. Welcome back to EM Cases, Ken. Well, I have to say, I am so glad to be jamming with you guys talking about TXA. This is this is a topic that I think really has some really good critical appraisal pearls in there and how we think about the literature in general. So thanks very much for inviting me. I'll do my best to be Rory. <laughs> All right. Well, just so we know a bit more about what TXA is, tranexamic acid is a synthetic... Oh, by the way, it's tranexamic acid, not transexamic acid, which... <laughs> Drives me a little bit crazy when people call it transexamic acid. It's tranexamic acid, which is a synthetic analog of the amino acid lysine. What it does is it interferes with the normal fibrinolysis process. Basically, it competitively inhibits activation of plasminogen. And the result is, on paper at least, that it helps stop bleeding. Uh, The oral bioavailability, I was surprised to find out, is only 34%. IV is way higher. Some use one gram over 10 minutes IV and then one gram over eight hours like they did in the CRASH-2 trial. Others just give two grams up front to keep it simple. You can see the IV stuff used for epistaxis. They just soak a pledget and stick it in the mouth or nose when you're bleeding. Or you can put the IV stuff into a nebulizer and have the patient inhale it for hemoptysis. Or you can give it orally for menorrhagia at one gram TID for a maximum of five days. So this is a, just a little bit of background about what TXA is and how it's used. So we have a ton of literature to cover. Ken, Justin, let's jump in and start with TXA in the perioperative period. 
So yeah, I think long before we ever even heard of TXA in emergency medicine, TXA and other antifibrinolytic agents had been used to try to prevent blood loss in the perioperative period. And although that's not super relevant to us clinically in emergency medicine, I think it provides some important context for the studies like CRASH-2. Um, so I think that's, that's a good idea to start there. So as of 2011, there was a Cochrane review where they found 252 RCTs on antifibrinolytics in the uh, perioperative period, there's more than 25,000 patients in those trials. And, and the sad thing is with 252 RCTs, I still don't think that we have a clear answer here. Now for TXA specifically, there were 65 trials, 4,800 patients. And the conclusions of the Cochrane review are that TXA reduced the need for blunt transfusions by about 18%, but TXA did not reduce the total volume of blood being transfused. The post-operative blood loss was reduced by an average of 240 milliliters, so not bad, but patient-oriented outcomes, there were no difference in mortality, reoperation for bleeding, MI, stroke, DVT, or PE. Yeah, and so any longtime listeners of the Journal Jam know that we can't just take the conclusions of a conquering review at face value. Almost every time we do this, when we read the studies for ourselves, we arrive at a different conclusion than the review. Justin, I hope you're not going to go through all 250 RCTs for us. Yeah, not this time. But I, I do think we should point out that there's some issues, which is why I say despite 250 RCTs, we still don't really have uh, have an answer here. Uh, one of the issues is just simply the that the average study size. You know, there are 25,000 patients in these studies, but the average is only 100 patients per trial. And the fact that there's these tons of small trials increases the chance of publication bias, which is when the negative trials in general tend to not make it into the literature. And in fact, if you look at the funnel plots in the Cochrane Review, they show pretty clear indication of publication bias. And overall, small in small trials, all types of bias are a, a concern. And although I have not read every one of the 252 RCTs, the couple that I've read do have some pretty big issues with them. And I think the biggest thing we've already mentioned, even though there's a small change in about 250 mils of blood loss, do we really care if no patient important outcomes are changed, if mortality doesn't change at all? And I think that's probably an important thing that we should keep in mind throughout this literature. There's a lot of times when we can see disease-oriented outcomes change without changing the things that are really, really important. Uh, and the thing that really jumped out at me from this Cochrane review, there's another agent very similar to TXA called aprotonin. It's another antifibrinolytic drug. And actually, it does a much better job than TXA in decreasing perioperative blood loss. The You, you bleed less. The problem it's actually been removed from the market over concerns that it increases mortality. The idea is we need to be very cautious about surrogate outcomes. Yeah, this is a great way to start because considering the perioperative literature lets us recognize that biases are important, small studies can be misleading, and we need to really focus in on the patient-oriented outcomes, the poos, not the surrogate outcomes, not the lose, the lab-oriented, the do's, the disease-oriented, or the moves, the monitor-oriented. We need to look at what is important to the patient and their oriented outcome. And of course, be skeptical as we move through this literature. So Justin, what's the bottom line for the surgical literature in TXA? What do you think? Yeah, so I think we've already said it. Even though there's a huge number of studies, I think we can just say we don't know. Maybe it decreases the amount of blood loss a little bit, uh, but that is a bit of a subjective outcome. But overall, it does not seem to 
decrease the things we really care about. There's no change in mortality is the biggest one. No change in any of the patient-oriented outcomes. Okay, so so that was all that on perioperative bleeding. That's not really something we care too much about in the ED. Remind me, why did we go through all this again? (laughs) Well, TXA being used in the surgical world for a longer period of time can inform what to expect in the emergency medicine literature. It was a good idea, at least to get some background on this topic. And if TXA was saving lives in the perioperative period, that would be really important because it could be an efficacious drug in the emergency department. Unfortunately, much of the ED literature is similar to the surgical literature. Lots of small, low-quality studies that suggest a potential benefit, but then larger, higher-quality studies are done, and it doesn't confirm that. So this background information can help inform our opinions when it comes to more important topics for emergency physicians, like is there a mortality benefit in patients with a GI bleed, an intracranial hemorrhage, postpartum hemorrhage, polytrauma, isolated TBI, all of those things where people can bleed and bleed out. Yeah, speaking of GI bleeds, let's dive into GI bleeds. So TXA has never really been a major part of resuscitation for GI bleeds, and it seems that the HALTET trial kind of halted the use of TXA in GI bleeds. But I understand there's a Cochrane review that actually suggests a possible mortality benefit. Ken, tell, tell us about that. Yeah, well, the evidence for TXA in GI bleeds follows this familiar pattern we see. Small, low-quality studies that suggest a benefit, they mash them all up into a meat grinder called a systematic review and meta-analysis, crank that meat grinder through, and then you get some point estimate with some impressive p-value, and certainty certainly doesn't exist. And then you get a larger, high-quality trial that shows no superiority of TXA over placebo for their primary outcome. And we see this pattern over and over and over again. And this is a pattern we really want to keep in mind when looking at all the topics we're going to run through today. So in the topic of GI bleed, we have the HALTA trial, which we're going to get back to in a second. But just in case anybody was wondering, there was this Cochrane review back in 2014. At that time, there were eight RCTs, about 800 patients uh, had been included. And I was actually surprised when I found this because, you know, we do a lot of GI bleeds and we give a lot of medications that we've probably talked about uh, before, things like PPIs, which probably don't have very good evidence at all. And actually, there was a statistically significant reduction in mortality in this Cochrane review. Like that blues, blew my mind. We never give TXA for this. Now, maybe we're lucky because actually, you know, we now have the HALTA trial, which shows that maybe we shouldn't have been trusting this Cochrane review. And if you dig into it, this is eight trials with 800 patients. So only 100 people for trial. And there are some problems if you really dig into this. When they adjusted for the fact that a large number of people were lost in these trials, the result wasn't statistically significant anymore. And there was no difference in some of the other things that you would expect to see a difference in, things like transfusion. And the number of people getting thrombotic events was a bit higher, but it wasn't statistically significant. So overall, you know, these results, although I'm sort of surprised, I thought people might have jumped on these results. They weren't all that exciting. All right. So that was a bit about the Cochrane review. You know, before Haltet came out, you could argue that maybe there was a benefit, but then Haltet came along. Ken, Tell us uh, more about the HALTED trial. This was like a huge trial, right? Yeah, it was a big trial. And HALTED, I didn't even start it. I'm with Justin. I wasn't doing this for my GI bleeds. So when HALTED came out, I'm like, what? Should I have been doing this? Oh, good. 
it do, it doesn't say I should be doing this. So this was a large trial, and by large, I'm talking about 12,000 patients. And remember when Justin was talking about the Cochrane review back in 2014, just over 800 patients in eight studies. So this is an order of magnitude bigger, right? At least one order of magnitude bigger. 12,000 adult patients, GI bleeds. The vast majority of them, 90% were upper GI bleeds, and they got randomized into TXA or placebo. Now they did change their primary outcome from all-cause mortality to disease-specific mortality. In other words, death due to bleeding from the GI bleed. And whenever I see something like that, it's like, whoop, 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 my skeptical radar goes off. But looking into it further, the decision was made with a justification before they unblinded the results. And it was just a matter of their sample size calculation was initially based on all-cause mortality as the primary outcome. But then they then they, you know, this is what happens when you do a study. The way to make a disease a rare disease is start studying it because inevitably it it doesn't seem as common as you thought it was. And so they had to readjust it and they changed their primary outcome. I don't need to go through all the details of changing the all-cause to disease-specific mortality. At the end of the day, it really didn't matter because there was no difference in the GI-related bleeding deaths They were both around 4%, no statistical difference. And the all-cause mortality, no difference statistically, around 9%. So clearly, clearly this was a quote-unquote negative trial because there was also no statistical difference in rebleeding, surgery, endoscopy, need for transfusion, or total blood products transfused. The only difference, and this this got my attention more than anything else, The only difference was an increase in venous thrombotic events. It doubled. Now, that's relative. It went from 0.4 to 0.8%, so a 0.4% increase. But that was a doubling. And uh, we've been traditionally told that we don't have to worry about this drug. It's not prothrombotic. This would suggest that might not be true. Now, it's hard to prove a negative than it is a positive, but clearly... Clearly, this is a pretty negative trial. However, I don't want to be shifting the burden of proof. Those who claim that TXA is superior to placebo in patients with a GI bleed for a patient-oriented outcome, they have the burden to support their claim with convincing evidence. The halt it doesn't convince me that it is superior. In fact, it looks like it's potentially worse because of the increased adverse events. And I'll just throw in a very quick segue on an EBM topic because I've ranted about it on EM cases before. So I'll, I'll leave it out. But I don't think there's a role for disease-specific mortality in evidence-based medicine. If people are interested in my why I say that, we talked about it in the CRASH-3 trial back on a uh, quick hits, and I've written it at length about it on my blog. But really what we care about is whether patients are alive or dead. We don't care what's written on the death certificate. And I think that patients would agree with me, me there. And I'll probably leave it there for the for this episode. Uh, and if people are more interested, we can talk in other places. But that does come up a lot in the TXA literature. Yeah, I agree. So I guess the the bottom line then with Haltet is that it was a negative trial. It was a huge trial. Even though the Cochrane Review suggested maybe some positive, it was lots of small studies. And if anything, yeah, Ken, I agree with you that what really caught my eye was the doubling in harms. Again, that's a re- it's you're only starting with 0.4%. It increased it to 0.8%. 
but that's not insignificant. That's something that up until then, the community shared the probably wrong idea that it really doesn't increase the risk of thromboembolic disease. Yeah. Two of the main arguments that I heard were, it, what's the harm? You know, what's the harm? There isn't it. We, we haven't seen a signal of harm. And the second one is, it's cheap. And uh, my my response to that is, shouldn't we determine if it works first? Absolutely. Then we will decide if the harm is worth accepting that potential risk. And then we'll have to decide whether we should put those financial resources behind that. Like, so let's start with, does it work? And my bottom line is the best available evidence. And you know, 12,000 people done in a very well done randomized blinded trial suggest that TXA should not be used in patients with GI bleeds as it has not increased the potential benefit, but it does have a small increase in the potential harms in the form of VTE. Okay. So I think we're, we're all in agreement here. It's pretty definitive that there's really not much of a role, if any, of TXA and GI bleeds. Let's tackle another potential indication for TXA, and that is postpartum bleeds. Uh, we don't see postpartum hemorrhage often in the ED, but when we do, it can get pretty hairy. What does the evidence tell us about the role of TXA in postpartum hemorrhage, Justin? Yeah, so there are a couple of tiny studies of TXA here, but they're really just three big RCTs that completely overpower them. So we're going to talk about the WOMAN trial, the TRAP trial, and the TRAP2 trial. Um, both the TRAP trials are actually preventative trials, so they're somewhat less applicable to us, but let's just run through those quickly. So TRAP1 was an RCT of 3,900 women approximately after having a vaginal delivery, looking at TXA to prevent PPH, and there was no difference in their primary outcome of uh, blood loss of at least 500 mils. If you look at the total blood loss, it was 220 mils versus 236 mils, and really down the line, blood transfusion, need for surgery, there were no differences down the line. The only thing people might commented on in this trial is they only used a single dose of TXA rather than that follow-up infusion, which may have biased trial against TXA, I suppose. TRAP2 is the exact same group. This time, it's uh, an RCT of 4,500 uh, women looking at TXA versus placebo, this time after C-section. This time, the primary outcome was actually positive. So they get a statistically significant result. But I think if you look through, it's really not clinically significant. So their definition of a, it was a combined primary outcome, uh, women with more than a liter of blood loss or with a need for transfusion within two days. And it was 27% with TXA versus 36% with placebo. So you know that is a 9% absolute risk reduction. But it's a subjective disease-oriented outcome that combines a couple different things. When I look down the list of all their outcomes, all the things that matter, there was only a 30 mil average difference in blood loss between the groups. There was no difference in transfusions. There was no difference in their follow-up hemoglobins. There's no difference in ICU use. There's no difference in surgery or invasive procedures. They don't even report mortality overall, which I assume in this low-risk population just means that nobody dies. And there were some more adverse events with TXA. It's mostly nausea and vomiting, though. But clots look very similar to that HALTIT trial. It was 0.1% uh, with placebo, 0.4% with TXA, which is a very small increase, but it's probably important considering overall there doesn't seem to be any important benefits there. So the two preventative trials both look, you know, borderline. There could be a tiny marginal benefit, but mostly look pretty negative in my eyes. Well, so yeah, it, it looks pretty similar to halt it. Again, there was an increase, even though uh, we're talking small numbers, there was an increase in venous thromboembolism. 
But Justin, these are these two trap trials, they're preventative trials, not so useful for us in the ED. What I think is more applicable for us is the woman trial. So um, Ken, what do we need to know about this woman trial for postpartum hemorrhage? Well, the woman trial was another well-done, multi-center, randomized, placebo-control, blinded trial. So it's got all those buzzwords that should catch our attention as a good trial. And it was over 20,000 women worldwide. The result in TXA versus placebo was there was no difference in their primary outcome. Now, their primary outcome was all-cause mortality combined with hysterectomies, and it was around 5% in both groups. But if you pulled out all-cause mortality, it was also no statistical difference, around 2.5% in both groups. But here's where some of the excitement came up for the woman's trial. They had a secondary outcome of death due to bleeding, and it was statistically significant. There was a delta, a magnitude, a difference of 0.4% of death due to bleeding. And Justin referred to this earlier. Do people really care what someone died of? Do families and patients care about what their loved one died of? No, I don't think so. I think they care more about, are they alive or are they dead? And what it says in the death certificate is not as important. And so that's the all-cause mortality is so very important. And also think about it, if death due to postpartum hemorrhage is down with TXA and the overall mortality isn't different, that means there must be some harm somewhere else to balance that off. And so you've got to look at the all-cause mortality. And when it came to the woman's trial, I would say, again, this is very similar to the HALT-IT trial. It didn't seem to be superior. All right. So it sounds like there's no robust benefit for TXA and postpartum bleeding or GI bleeds. But, you know, I got to say that previous to the HALTED trial, if someone was really tanking and I needed to kind of throw the typewriter at them, I would throw in TXA as well. And for a postpartum bleed, if if I'm faced with that in the emergency department and there's no obvious contraindications, if they're tanking and they're on death's door, I'm going to throw TXA at them. Justin, what's your bottom line with postpartum hemorrhage? Yeah, I think the problem with a lot of this research is it is very difficult to prove a negative. And the the people in the women trial were relatively healthy. And so you could hypothesize that TXA might be more valuable in a really sick group of patients. And that does sort of make sense to me, but it's still just a hypothesis. So overall, I think we have a couple really big trials here that are although Ken doesn't like the word, pretty negative in the words that we use. Uh, And there maybe is a hint at a tiny bit of benefit out there. I think the best thing we can say is that the current evidence is that TXA does not help in postpartum hemorrhage. I think maybe there's a secondary analysis here that needs some follow-up trials if people are, are interested. I definitely don't think that TXA should be used routinely. I'm definitely also not going to get verbally aggressive and fault anybody if they decide in a massive transfusion uh, situation that they want to throw some TXA on. I just think don't let yourself be distracted from the priorities, which is actually resuscitating the woman in front of you. Yeah, fair enough. I I agree. Anton, should we clarify for some of our younger listeners what a typewriter is and that you should not be throwing it at someone who's exsanguinating? (laughs) All right, let's move on to uh, non-traumatic intracranial hemorrhage. You know, we're talking stuff like ruptured aneurysm or a hypertensive parenchymal bleed. We're talking the TITCH-2 trial for ICH and the ULTRA trial for subarachnoid hemorrhage. Ken, what can you tell us about the TITCH-2 trial? 
Well, this is looking at non-traumatic intracranial hemorrhage. And like you said, most of the evidence comes from the TITCH-2 trial. This was a multi-center, double-blinded, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. They got over 2,300 patients with non-traumatic, and that's key, non-traumatic intracranial hemorrhage to either getting IVTXA or placebo, and their primary outcome showed no difference in functional outcome at three months. And there was also no difference in mortality. Now, there was a statistical difference in hematoma size, but again, that's a disease-specific outcome, a do, not a poo, a patient-oriented outcome. Now, one of the big caveats with this trial is that it's possible that enrolling patients up to eight hours after the intracranial hemorrhage, maybe the horse is out of the barn, as we say in the country. The damage is done and you're closing the gate after the horse is gone. And so there was a reasonable hypothesis of should you be getting this earlier? What happened if you gave it ultra quickly? Very, very slick segue into the ultra trial there, Ken. Uh, Justin. <laughs> so yeah, we, when when it comes to subarachnoid hemorrhage, uh, the big trial is the ultra trial. Before mentioning that, there is a little bit more research in subarachnoid hemorrhage. So there was a Cochrane review back in 2013. They had 10 RCTs that found about 2,000 patients. Uh, and at that point, they found that TXA did not change the number of people with a good neurologic outcome. It didn't change all-cause mortality. There did seem to be a decrease in the rate of re-bleeding, which sounds like it could be important, but that's balanced out by a increase in cerebral ischemia, so some harm there. And really, who cares about those disease-oriented outcomes when there was no change in neurologic outcome, there was no change in mortality. But this is 10 trials with with 1,900 patients, pretty small trials. So that's why, as Ken alluded to, we have the big RCT, the ultra trial published in 2021. This is all those keywords, multi-center, randomized, controlled. Actually, it's open label, though. This is not as big as some of these other trials, 955 adult patients less than 24 hours after a CT-confirmed non-traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage comparing TXA to usual care it's pretty much the same as the Cochrane review. There was no change in neurologic outcome. There was no change in mortality. There was no change in their fancy ordinal analysis. Although actually, if you look at it, they were very close to demonstrating harm from TXA in that if it had been a benefit, they probably would have called it a trend towards benefit, but actually it's sort of a trend towards harm there. Okay. So this sounds a little less controversial than some of the other areas we've looked at. Uh, only a couple of big trials and both were negative kind of across the board. Sounds like our bottom line is that there is no role for TXA in non-traumatic ICH. Yeah, the quality of the evidence here is stronger than in some of the other areas. And the trials clearly didn't show superiority. So at this point, there doesn't seem to be a role for the use of TXA in non-traumatic intracranial hemorrhage or subarachnoid hemorrhage. All right, we'll get to traumatic head bleeds a little bit later when we talk about the CRASH-3 trial, but I want to move down from the head now and talk about epistaxis. This actually might be one of the most controversial topics that we cover in this journal jam. People love their TXA for epistaxis. Many ED docs use it as their first line in hopes of preventing the need for packing. Uh, But when it comes to the literature, it looks like the pattern is pretty similar here as well. Small, low-quality studies that are positive large, higher quality studies that are negative. Justin, can you go through the the papers for us? 
Yeah, this is one of those topics. I was actually an early adopter after these small, low-quality RCTs, but it's an idea in, in evidence-based medicine. You always have to be willing to change your mind and adjust with the times, and that's what's going to happen here. So the Cochrane Review that covers those small RCTs that I think we all heard about as they came out, uh, came out in 2018. There were six RCTs in total with only 692 patients. So again, pretty small trials. The RCT rates the quality of those trials as moderate to low, so lots of risk of bias here. Overall, in the Cochrane Review, TX XA seems to decrease the risk of uh, re-bleeding with a relative risk of 0.7. So that's pretty good. If you try to go up from re-bleeding to something a little bit more patient-oriented, more significant, there wasn't a change in transfusion. There wasn't a change in repacking or surgery or embolization. And there are some noted issues here. Only about half the trials were blinded. It's a pretty heterogeneous group of trials uh, comparing different things. What is the standard of care for epistaxis anyway? And then my biggest concern going through a lot of these small trials is that none of the trials actually report significant adverse events. And so if you're comparing benefits and harms, you have to have the trials actually report the harms to you. So overall, the conclusion from Cochrane was the body of evidence included in this review is insufficient to allow robust conclusions to be drawn. But I think almost all of us in emergency medicine use this evidence to jump in and start using TXA. Isn't that what every Cochrane review says? (laughs) (laughs) Is there a stock template? Yes. Yeah. All right, Ken, tell us a little bit a little bit about the uh, the NOPAC trial for epistaxis. Yeah, so for the NOPAC, this was a recent trial that was just published. It was multi-center, double-blinded, randomized control trial that had close to 500 adult patients with epistaxis. All right, so th- this these were actually quite a bit bigger. Even though it's only 500, it's still quite a bit bigger than all the teeny tiny trials before it, eh? This was more than double the size of some of the previous trials. These adult patients, they had already failed, and the patients hadn't failed. The treatment had failed. Some basic first aid measures. So that was direct pressure and also a topical vasoconstrictor. So once, if if those things worked, you didn't get into this cohort of 500 people. So you had to not be successful with direct pressure. And then you had to have a vasoconstrictor not work as well. And what they found was there was no statistical difference for their primary outcome of need for anterior packing. 40% roughly in both groups. That seemed a little high. There was no difference in any of their secondary outcomes, including treatments for epistaxis, hospital admissions, which maybe Justin will mention, blood transfusions or recurrent epistaxis. Now, the trial is certainly not definitive. Like, there are very few definitive trials. This was twice the size, more than twice the size of some of those other studies, but they used a lower dose, Anton, 200 milligrams that they could repeat once, PRN, versus 500 milligrams, which were used in those other studies. This was a blinded trial. The other two trials were not blinded. They had those highly selected patients that got into the cohort, but then in this group, two-thirds were anticoagulated, and we don't know anything about the anticoagulation. Did it include antiplatelet drugs or other drugs, DOACs? We don't have that granularity of the data. So what are we going to do? Yeah, so I think there's actually a really interesting point there, Ken, about 
critical appraisal in general. And, and the lesson you bring up, this, this admission rate, highlights to me how important it is to actually have a little bit of clinical expertise to interpret any trial. When I read that 45% of patients with epistaxis were getting admitted to hospital, I had red flags going off left, right, and center. Like that is just nothing like my practice. I thought these patients must have been completely different. There was no way that I was going to be able to apply this evidence to my patients. And so that was a big critical appraisal red flag to me until I just talked to some people in Britain. And they have this four-hour rule. You're not allowed to stay in the emergency department past four hours. And so that has just developed into a culture where if you have epistaxis, you get admitted to hospital. If, if you need a pack, that, that is, uh, all these high-risk risk patients. And so it's just part of their culture. I, I think we would be sending in Canada all of these patients home. Uh, when we talk to people in the US online in Australia, these patients all go home, but there's just a, a, a factor of the UK system. So what could have been a major red flag about the evidence actually just turns it out to be an irrelevant fact that we can ignore and move on in this trial. Because I think this is an excellent quality trial that gives us pretty good results. So with TXA for epistaxis, there's a couple of smaller positive trials, a bigger negative trial, but you know, TXA has really gained a lot of popularity for epistaxis over the last few years. I wonder what the safety of TXA given intranasally is compared to IV. Because, you know, if it is perfectly safe intranasally, we know based on the HALTIT trial and the woman trial that there is some harm with the IV TXA. But if it's when given intranasally, if it's perfectly safe, then it still might be worth trying for epistaxis. I guess we don't really know the answer of whether it's perfectly safe or not. Yeah, so I think a one of the fundamental lessons in medicine that we all have to to get into our heads is if a medicine has an effect, there will be the possibility of side effects. Effect means side effect. Now, do I think that the topical TXA is going to have very big side effects? No, I, I think this is going to be a pretty safe medication. Uh, but going back to Ken's original point, I think we better figure out if there is an effect first. Uh, the NOPAC trial was a very good trial. But is it a definitive trial? Does it cover all epistaxis? I don't know. If I have a patient who I've already tried everything I can think of to try and they're sitting there at 4.30 in the morning, am I going to call the ENT without trying some TXA first? I don't know. I think for this topic, the answer is a little bit of an uncertainty. I think we shouldn't be using TXA routinely as our frontline agent. TXA is definitely not a miracle cure for epistaxis. We do not have good evidence that it, that it helps. But I think there's still some question on this topic. I'd like to follow up with that a bit, Justin, because I think it's a fascinating example of you have a couple of small studies that look really positive. Don't get too excited. Just, you know, relax a bit and go, okay, interesting. I'd like to see some replication. So this may or may not be incorporated into my practice, but it certainly after a couple of small studies shouldn't become a protocol, a quality metric, a thou shalt do this. And then you have something like this comes along. It's easier to be flexible and say, well, listen, I wasn't forcing it on every epistaxis patient that came in. And this will give me a bit of a pause to say, well, let's look at the available evidence that we have. This is only 500 patients. What are the other studies we were looking at? The woman's trial, 20,000. The HALTIT trial, 12,000. 500 patients, well done study. I think my conclusion is when it comes to epistaxis and TXA, I don't know. I thought you knew everything, Ken. <laughs> and that's an answer though. <laughs> Not knowing is an answer. 
Yeah, okay. Fair enough. All right, let's move a bit south from the nose down to the tonsils. Thankfully, we don't see bleeding tonsils too often in the ED, but when we do, uh, they're often a challenge to treat, I find. So it'd be nice if we could reach for something like TXA to stop the bleeding. Ken, what does the literature show on TXA for the treatment of post-tonsillectomy bleeding? So we've been starting with systematic reviews, so we'll do that again. And there was a systematic review and meta-analysis by Chan et al. in 2013. And what they did was they combined three randomized control trials and four case control series, all looking at preventing rather than treating a tonsillar bleed. They found a statistically reduced mean blood loss. Now, I've never had someone post-tonsillectomy, you know, comes into the emergency and says, hey, doc, does it say how much blood I lost? No, nobody's ever said that to me. But the total amount seems like it could be clinically insignificant. Do you know how much it was, Anton? 33 mils. That's like a, that's like in quantity, that's, you know, I, I know we're doing metric here. You may have some American listeners, but that's about a shot glass amount of blood, isn't it? 30 cc's is about an ounce, right? So it's not a big deal, right? It's not a big amount. Uh, it didn't reduce the risk of post-tonsillectomy hemorrhage, um, but they had wide confidence intervals around that. There was no change in the patient-oriented outcomes in this systematic review. The number of patients requiring further treatment was pretty much identical, and there was no change in the mean fall in hemoglobin. Higher quality than some, the two out of the three randomized control trials were blinded, but still that amount was under 300 patients. So the bottom line, and, and I'm sorry, and I'll bring up an old-fashioned technology here, Anton. This may sound like a broken record. But we have a few small trials looking at the prevention of hemorrhage, and the total amount of bleeding might have been decreased a bit, but clinically important outcomes like the need for further intervention were really not different. All right, so a, a tiny, tiny decrease in the amount of bleeding post-tonsillectomy. I mean, we're talking a shot glass worth. So yeah, not a not a panacea, that's for sure. Before we move further south into the lungs, dentists have actually been using TXA for many, many, many years for, for gum bleeding. And it's actually not uncommon in, in the ED that I work to see patients with bleeding gums after dental surgery come in in the middle of the night. Justin, what does the literature say about bleeding gums in TXA? Yeah, so it's going to be very similar to what we just went through with the tonsillectomy uh, bleeds. It's just way too low quality to say anything definitive. Uh, there is a Cochrane review to help us here. Again, uh, it was in 2018. Uh, there are no actual treatment studies here, so nothing specifically relevant to us in the emergency department, but uh, there are four trials looking at TXA as a preventative measure. All of those trials are in patients on anticoagulation. Uh, none of them were DOAC, so we have four trials of TXA to prevent bleeding in patients with therapeutic INRs on warfarin, essentially. So there were two trials that compared TXA to placebo. There's only 128 patients total. Uh, in those trials, preventative TXA did seem to decrease the number of post-operative bleeds that required somebody to go in and do an intervention. So maybe it helps. However, the other two trials compared TXA to standard care, which could be as simple as dry gauze compression, and there was no difference at all there. Um, so, I mean, this sounds very uh, familiar. We have a couple small, low-quality studies that seem to be a little bit uh, positive, 
But there's some red flags here. These studies date back to the early 90s before we had trial registries. So I am concerned about the possibility of publication bias. They are small. There's risk of bias. And I think most importantly here, I think standard of care in this case is probably a better comparison than placebo. And TXA does not seem to be any better than simple pressure with dry gauze. Now, obviously, again, these are preventative studies. It's not an emergency-based study. It's not somebody bleeding in front of you in the middle of the night. Uh, We just don't have any evidence at all that I can find for those patients. So it's a big question mark, but with, with a bottom line that TXA does not seem to be a miracle drug at all, probably no benefit at all. All right. Moving further south, we arrive at the lungs. Now, I think it's pretty slick to slap on a nebulizer with TXA in it for the patient with non-massive hemoptysis while you're waiting for the hemoglobin and the imaging to come back. I've anecdotally found it works for those not-so-sick patients. And I understand that there's some TXA studies for hemoptysis, some that use the uh, IV TXA, some that use the nebulized stuff. So, Justin, what's the lowdown on the literature for TXA and hemoptysis? So unfortunately, the quality of the evidence here is not much better than the last two topics that we covered. This is actually a funny topic because I brought this up during residency based on one trial that I found and everybody looked at me like I had three heads. What do you mean TXA for hemoptysis? And now that we have a few more studies and maybe a better understanding of it, it's all the vogue and everybody's using it despite no higher quality evidence than there was uh, 10 years ago. In total, it looks like there's about three RCTs for TXA hemoptysis. They're pretty different. They use TXA in different routes um, in, in pretty different patients. For our, from our perspective, none of them had massive hemoptysis. Uh, so it's hard to know what to do in those patients that we really, really care about. There are some benefits if you look in each individual trial reported, but they're pretty inconsistent. And again, these trials are small. Um, so we can just really quickly go through it. There was a Cochrane review in 2016 that includes two of the three RCTs. There was no difference in that trial in remission by seven days. The duration of bleeding was slightly shorter, a mean difference of 19 hours. So maybe a small disease-oriented outcome. There were no serious adverse events reported in these trials, but there were some mild side effects that were higher with TXA. And then the other RCT looked at nebulized TXA uh, in non-massive hemoptysis. Uh, This is maybe the one that got everybody most excited, but there was only 47 patients in the trial, and they report a significant improvement in the resolution of bleeding. It was 96% versus 50% huge outcomes. The mortality also looks better not statistically significant, but zero versus 9%, but with a p-value of 0.21. So who knows what that means? However, you know, this is a 47-person trial. The trial was stopped early without any clear reason why they stopped it early. Uh, and there were some pretty important differences in the in the baseline between these two groups. And actually, if you just read the manuscript, there's even basic mathematical errors in the manuscript. So I have some pretty big red flags about this individual trial. So, I mean, if any of those differences were true, a 9% absolute difference in mortality is unheard of. It's absolutely amazing. I think I would term it unbelievable in the context of the quality of this research. All right. Yeah, this sounds a lot messier. I mean, a 9% absolute difference in mortality sounds like it could be really important, but as you say, it's kind of unbelievable. Um, And unlike bleeding elsewhere, even a small amount of blood in the lungs can be a huge problem. And you you can't apply direct pressure in the lungs like you would in a nosebleed. How would you summarize the evidence for TXA for hemoptysis and apply it clinically? Would you would you use it? Yeah, I, I think the best answer is Ken's answer. We don't know. But what do you actually do clinically with that answer is really hard to say, right? Clearly, we need a large RCT here. There's no doubt 
this is an important area for bleeding. And if we could get any kind of indication, it would be could be really, really valuable. I think in order to decide whether you're going to use TXA in the absence of evidence, what you might want to do is think about whether TXA works in a large number of other conditions, sort of what we're doing throughout this entire journal, Jim. If TXA was working for everything else that we looked at, then you might be able to feel comfortable using it in an area where the, ev- the evidence is so-so. But if TXA has a history of having just a bunch of small, low-quality trials that are positive, but every single time the high-quality uh, trial is negative – then I might not use TXA for this indication. And I think we're closer to that second scenario than the first. All right. Another spot where we can't apply pressure, where applying a pressure would be really bad, is the eye. Um, so let's talk about hyphemas. <laughs> now, not something we think about a lot, but you know, a very small amount of blood in the eye can really cause a lot of problems. And it would be nice if TXA could help settle that hyphema down. Ken? What does the evidence say about TXA for hyphema? Wouldn't it be nice? Well, there is a Cochrane review. There's five studies, and they had just over 100 patients on average in each study. Doesn't this sound familiar, Anton? So this was published in 2019, and they were all looking at oral TXA in this case. And they found that it did reduce the risk of secondary hemorrhage by quite an impressive odds ratio, zero 0.25. And that confidence interval, the top end was below 0.5. So that, that seems pretty good. But then you actually look at the primary outcome of visual acuity, no difference, no statistical difference. So there was no superiority, no benefit to visual acuity in TXA patients compared to placebo patients. Now there was one concern about, uh, you know, TXA in this cohort, and that was the possible increase in glaucoma. Now, it wasn't statistically significant, but the point estimate for the odds ratio was, you know, I don't want to say favoring TXA, but showing the risk of glaucoma was higher in that group compared to the placebo group. So to summarize hyphemas and TXA, we've got a few small studies. TXA reduces a surrogate outcome, but not a patient-oriented outcome like visual acuity. So we need a large randomized control trial. The answer at this point, I certainly don't know. And I don't know if Justin knows. I do not. So the big topic of the day is trauma, but we have one final topic before we get there. And Actually, this could be really important because it's so common. We're usually talking about TXA in the context of sick resuscitation patients, but the bulk of our patients aren't actually in the resuscitation room. Dysfunctional uterine bleeding is a very common complaint, and TXA is very widely used for it. Justin, I'll admit I'm sensing a trend in the evidence we've discussed so far. Are you going to surprise us? Is TXA a miracle cure for dysfunctional uterine bleeding? Yeah, unfortunately not. Although I admit this is one of those indications where I have in clinical practice started using TXA, but that was before I did this TXA deep dive. So there was a there is a Cochrane review that covers this topic from 2018. They found 13 RCTs with 1,300 patients. It's amazing how every single time the average is 100 patients per trial in every single one of these Cochrane reviews. Overall, they did have some quote unquote positive findings. Uh, they found that TXA resulted in a decreased in total bleeding per cycle, 
although it's 50 milliliters total. So again, a pretty small clinical difference. If you look at self-reported symptoms only, about 10% of patients will improve with no treatment. About 40% of patients will improve if you give them progesterone. And about 60% of patients will improve if you give them NSAIDs. And TXA is like the NSAIDs. About 60% of patients report a subjective improvement, uh, which is pretty good. But is TXA better than NSAIDs? I, I don't know. And then again, this is an average of 100 patients per trial. Overall, the Cochrane rates the quality of these studies as low. Half of them weren't blinded. They don't report a difference in adverse events, but most of these studies don't even report on harms. So, you know, that sounds very, very similar to something that we just say over and over again here. For all these other indications, we have a bunch of small, low quality studies that suggest some small improvements, mostly in disease oriented outcomes. In all these other indications, we get that one large, high quality study, and it's basically been negative. We don't have that large high quality study in dysfunctional uterine bleeding yet, but my guess is it would be negative as as well. So it's it's one of those ones to be a hard bottom line again. The evidence suggests potentially a small benefit from TXA, but the available evidence is low quality. I don't think it should be used routinely. I wouldn't fault you if you used it occasionally because I don't know. That's incredible that, I mean, it is so widely used. I see pretty much every patient going home with dysfunctional uterine bleeding from the merge and coming in from their gynecologist, almost all of them have had a trial of five days of TXA for their dysfunctional uterine bleeding. Ken? I think it represents uh, one of the common things that we have in practice, and that is intervention bias. We feel better if we've done something, and so we've given the patient something. And we'll attribute the benefits to that doing something and anything negative, oh, well, it probably had nothing to do with the intervention that we did. And so there is this thing called intervention bias. And I think, you know, the dysfunctional uterine bleeding story is an example of intervention bias. It's a great point. All right. Now we've come to the moment we've all been waiting for, and that is TXA and trauma. Now, it's striking that most trauma surgeons and trauma team leaders don't even think twice about giving TXA to just about every polytrauma patient with even a sniff of hemodynamic instability when the evidence actually isn't that clear. I mean, in our recent episode on massive hemorrhage protocols, our experts recommended TXA for all trauma patients who are receiving blood products and in patients with an initial systolic blood pressure of less than 90 or a heart rate of more than 110. And to give it as soon as possible, because they said the observational data suggests that every 15-minute delay decreases its mortality benefit by 10%. So this is based, of course, on observational data. So the trauma world seems to think that TXA is this wonder drug. Ken, let's talk about the CRASH-2 trial. This is kind of what started the whole ball rolling to give TXA for just about every bleeding patient in the universe. Tell us the details of the the CRASH-2. Yeah, CRASH-2 was the big trial that sort of got everybody at least very interested in the trauma world about TXA. And this was a well-done randomized control trial of 20,000 plus adult trauma patients with significant hemorrhage. And they compared TXA to placebo. They gave the one gram up front over 10 minutes and then ran an infusion over eight hours. That was the standard uh, TXA protocol and that 
It's one, the one they used in Crash 2. Now, the big, you know, woot, woot, woot message was it decreased all-cause mortality by 1.5%. That was the absolute difference. That's important, though. A 1.5% difference, if true, is important. The number needed to treat would be 67 to save a life over the next 28 days. Now, there are some concerns about the CRASH-2 trial with regards to how applicable it is, external validity to other trauma systems like in North America. And I understand that some people have been more likely to adopt it uh, in North America. I've actually found there's been some resistance to using TXA in trauma, not so much in Canada, but more in the United States. And while it's uh, more enthusiastically embraced in the UK. Yeah. So Ken, I think one of the fascinating things about this trial is it was, it came out as I was in residency. And so this was one of my introductions to evidence-based medicine. And what's interesting is watching how things change over a decade. Cause when this came out, Everybody did what we normally do about trials, and we have our journal clubs, and we discuss the shortcomings in in the trial. And you can go back to the day, listen to Rick and Jerry on emergency medicine abstracts, and this was not a perfect trial. But over 10 years, all that anybody seems to remember is 1.5% absolute mortality difference. And that's an important finding. Absolutely, this is a groundbreaking trial. I changed my practice. I used TXA after this trial, but I think it's really important. And what gets lost in a decade of just mortality benefit is some of those weaknesses in the trial. And I don't think we need to go through every single one of them here. We have a long write-up on my blog post. I know you've covered it as well. People have covered this trial ad ad nauseum. But there are a few things that raise some questions about this trial. This is the group that since has switched to only talking to us about disease-specific mortality. They really, really focused in on that. What's interesting here is that none of the bleeding numbers changed at at all throughout this entire trial. All of their measures of, of transfusion, the amount of blood loss doesn't change at all, and yet somehow the drug's saving lives. That's that's fascinating for a drug that's supposed to stop uh, stop you bleeding. And so I, I think there are some the legitimate questions. The biggest one that I think we got wrong for a decade was people kept saying there were no harms in Crash 2, but I think you have to remember where this trial was being done. A large number of the trial sites didn't even have a fax machine in order to randomize patients properly. What are the chances that you might miss a PE or a DVT three weeks or four weeks down down the line? So harm certainly could have been underestimated in, in this trial. I think for our purposes, the bottom line is mortality benefit. That is incredibly important, but Remember that it's not a perfect trial, and there are some other reasons that it could have been positive. Like we talk about it, there's always bias in all of these trials. I understand there is one other important RCT when it comes to TXA for trauma. Yeah, other people will be aware of it. It's this STAMP trial. It's a multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. The difference is it was in the pre-hospital setting, uh, looking at trauma patients with hypotension or tachycardia. It was a statistically negative trial, and we spent a lot of time focusing on the difference between statistically different, significant and clinically significant. This was a statistically negative trial, but the absolute difference between the two groups was 1.8%, which is basically the exact same as CRASH-2. So even though this is a negative trial, I think it's pretty consistent with Crash 2, and and I don't know that it adds a huge amount more more than that. That's interesting. I mean, they call it a negative trial. I've never even heard of the STAMP trial. <laughs> Had the same outcome as, uh, as Crash 2. Crash 2 was called a positive trial, and that's the one that everyone 
always talks about. One thing I wanted to mention, Anton, and I was going to put on my rural hat because both of you work in an urban environment. The vast majority of these sites were not in large, well-developed trauma centers, and that's, that brings up the external validity. But I work in a rural center where our massive transfusion protocol is both units of O negative. Oh, yes, we're doing massive transfusion. And so, uh, you know, looking at one of the things about evidence-based medicine is here we have the literature that should inform our care, but we also have to use our clinical judgment. So depending on how far I, away I am and what resources I have, it may be more likely or more important for me to reach for the TXA and those polytrauma patients because they're being shipped somewhere else. And I don't have a trauma surgeon right there to do source control and get them to the operating room and even have advanced imaging because I don't have a CT scanner. So I, I have to interpret that in my practice environment. Excellent point. When you have nothing else to reach for, TXA might be your your only choice. Okay, so to summarize the trauma section, really we have one big trial and one small trial that shows mortality benefit from TXA. Uh, and it's an important benefit, but it is still only really two trials. And it's an important benefit but really, these trials weren't perfect. They never are. And replication of findings really is the foundation of good science. We should probably pause and just briefly discuss why replication is so important. Justin, why is uh, replication so important? Yeah, this could become a very long rant, but it's one of those things. People look at CRASH-2, which is a massive 20,000-person excellent trial, and Look at me like I'm crazy when I say it still probably needs to be replicated. So I think we all really need to understand why replication is so in important. And I think we do sort of inherently. So imagine your friend throws a dart and it hits the bullseye. You would never let them claim that they are the world's greatest dart thrower. Based on that single throw, you would ask them to do it again because flukes can happen. Replication reduces the risk that what you're seeing was a fluke. And the more that you do something, the more likely that individual flukes are. So if you throw a million darts, well, the chances are a couple are going to hit a bullseye. Even if you suck at darts, trust me, I know. But the problem is like there are literally millions of papers added to PubMed every year. So we know that some flukes are going to happen. And so that's why we really need to verify positive studies, even when they're high quality studies. Yeah, I think replication is a foundational principle of science and we need replications. We have been fooled too many times with one and done and trying to de-implement something is much harder than it is to implement something. And so, you know, when you have a single positive study, there are probably three options. It could be a mathematical fluke. All right. Now I, I think the crash two trial was a little bit, took more skill than throwing a dart. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate the analogy. Um, it could be because of bias or it could be a true finding, right? So I don't want to set up a false dichotomy. It could just be, you know, chance, a fluke. It happened. It could be due to bias or it could be the actual, you know, when I say true finding, the best point estimate of an, of an observed effect size. There we go. That's how I feel about that, Justin. Yeah. And so, and I guess the punchline there is all three of those are really important to consider. 
mathematical chance alone is how we normally refer to it, bias, which we talk about all the time, the systematic pushing of trial results away from the truth or just a, a true result. And how do you sort that out? You have three options. And, and really, that's the bottom line. The only way to sort those three tri- options out is to replicate the trial, to do it again and see if you get it again. Because once you see the same results two or three times in a row, now you're starting to get a sense that the result findings are true because you won't replicate chance findings and you're unlikely to, to reproduce the same biases over and, and over again. And so that's why basically the entire basis of science is trying to falsify our results. So, you know, if, if we focus in on crash two, like Ken says, it's pretty unlikely. This is a huge trial. It's pretty unlikely that a mathematical fluke is, is the, tr- the truth here. It's still possible, but pretty unlikely. And this is a good trial, but it's not a perfect trial. So bias is still a possible explanation for the findings. Um, Without a doubt, it's a good enough trial that we should be using TXA for all of our trauma patients uh, who would have been included in CRASH-2 right now, but that doesn't mean that we're 100% certain. That doesn't mean that the science is finished. And so I think if we back up, part of the whole reason that I wanted to do this episode for so long is trying to sort out how much you trust the results of CRASH-2, which of those three options it is, is considering your pretest probability or just considering all of the available uh, research. So crash two has an excellent p value for the primary outcome, zero point zero zero three. But it's really important to sort of know what that means, and all that really depends a lot on what you thought about TXA before we even got into this trial. So say before you uh, heard about CRASH-2, you thought there was a 50% chance that TXA was going to decrease mortality. Well, in that case, a p-value of 0.003 would leave you with about a 95% certainty that the mortality benefit is real, that this is not a mathematical fluke. But the reason I even leave mathematical fluke on the table here is that I don't think that we probably should have come into crash two with a 50% chance of it working. Remember, we talked about that perioperative uh, research. There had been 252 RCTs and there was no mortality benefit seen. So let's say you actually thought there was a 5% chance that TXA would save lives before the crash two trial was published. Well, then that p-value of 0.003 only changes that 5% pretest probability into about 50%. So now it's a coin flip, whether this is a a mathematical truth or a statistical fluke. That's a really important number uh, to know. And honestly, I think the 5% might even be a little bit generous based on all this literature that we've gone through. Clearly, everything we've said today, TXA is not a wonder drug and CRASH-2 is a bit of an outlier. It's the only high quality positive trial. So CRASH-2 is a great trial. But I think we have to keep in mind, there's still a reasonable chance that the results are wrong and we need that replication to know for sure. And if you're thinking like um, someone who's looking at pretest probability, I have to say that my confidence in Crash 2 has gone down with the publication of the woman's trial, the publication of Haltit trial, the Titch 2 trial. Uh, I'm sure we're going to be talking about crash three trial. So every time we get another study, a well done large study that's done on TXA looking at bleeding, I reassess my confidence in crash two and my confidence is continually going down. And before we should move on to crash three, this has been a long section. I warned you it'd be a long EBM rant, but I think it's important to understand replication. And there's one other really important reason to replicate science. TXA does seem to work in the exact crash two protocol, 
But what about in other settings? Does TXA work in advanced trauma centers, or is it better in rural settings like you brought up, Ken? Is it equally good with blunt trauma and penetrating trauma? I don't know. Does it work for everybody, or is it better just if you have a coagulopathy? Those are the kind of details that we can't get from a single trial, and replication trials could really help us. So despite this being a massive, practice-changing, excellent study, again, I don't think that we should consider the science done. All right, replication is key. That's that's what I got out of all of that. <laughs> all right. The last trial we're going to talk about is the CRASH-3. And as Ken was alluding to, the CRASH-3 is not a convincing trial for any benefit. And it's an isolated head injury. So Ken, could you just run through for us quickly before we get to our conclusions on TXA in general? What did the CRASH-3 show us? So the CRASH-3 was a very well-done multi-center randomized control trial looking at adult patients with isolated traumatic brain injuries. And they compared a standard dose of TXA, that was that one gram over 10 minutes, followed by an infusion over eight hours, versus a placebo. And their primary outcome was all-cause mortality. And when they got their results, there was no change in all-cause mortality. They also had a a change in their primary outcome to head injury-related death, which I know, Justin, you did a mini rant, I think, before on this. We shouldn't be doing disease-specific mortality. We should be looking at all-cause mortality. But there was no change in their new primary outcome, which was head injury-related mortality. No change in neurologic outcomes. So you could say, well, this didn't demonstrate superiority of TXA versus placebo for an adult patient with isolated traumatic brain injury. But there was a subgroup that did report to have a statistical benefit, which of course, in this case, death could be considered an important clinical outcome. And so the head injury-related death on people with mild to moderate head injury, they did show a reduction in head injury-related death with a relative risk of 0.78 and the 95% confidence interval all favored TXA. And so rather than ranting right now, we're going to come back to subgroups as part of our our summary here. I think maybe just the one thing to point out is their specific disease-specific mortality they were interested in in that subgroup went down. But actually, if you look at the rest of causes, all other disease-specific mortality, TXA actually seems to increase death from all other causes with a relative risk of 1.31, not statistically significant. But that is something to keep in mind. If you're going to focus on one cause of death, you really have to focus on all the causes of death because uh, it's not great to have TXA increasing death from other causes. Wait, hold on there, because you guys were talking about how the cause of death doesn't really matter. All we really care about is whether they die or not. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I think now we're getting into the weeds a little bit. Uh, I wouldn't pay attention to this at all. And actually, maybe we can summarize it best. So there is a meta-analysis on this uh, topic. I'll admit I am one of – I was – honored to be invited. I don't know why I was invited to be an author on this meta-analysis. All the work was really done by the incredible team at McMaster. But we've got nine trials. We've got 15,000 approximately patients. And the important outcomes, the things that we care about, there was no effect at all on mortality, all-cause mortality. There was no effect on neurologic outcomes. There's a hint that it could be decreasing hematomastase statistically, 
but clinically it's completely insignificant. It's an average of 2.5 milliliters difference between the two groups. Who cares? I think the summary is pretty clear. There's, there's not a strong disease oriented outcome here. I think subgroups are interesting. I think we can, we can swing back to them. If people want to follow it up, I think maybe it is a good, good thing to follow this up with further research. But right now there does not seem to be a good reason to be using this routinely in traumatic, isolated traumatic head injuries. And Anton, there was a uh, randomized control trial done in the pre-hospital setting for isolated traumatic brain injuries as well. And this sort of put a damper to the, well, you have to give it early. If you're not giving it early enough, that's the problem. That was the rationale uh, for why it may not have worked as well as had been expected. And when they ran the trial and did the trial in a pre-hospital setting and gave TXA, and I believe it was one gram plus the standard infusion or two grams up front or the placebo control, Again, they didn't find a statistical difference in their primary outcome, even if you gave it in the pre-hospital setting, which I think it's safe to conclude that that would be earlier than in the in-hospital setting. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about timing of TXA, because whenever we do give TXA, it's always in the context of the faster you give it, the better. Justin, what? how would you say from an EBM perspective, is this true? The faster you give it, the better? I mean, do we know that for sure? Yeah, I actually think it's almost certainly not true. Uh, there was some data in these trials uh, early on that maybe giving TXA early uh, was better, but I think it's really important to understand the limitations of that data. And the biggest one is this is observational data only, right? Nobody was randomized to early versus late TXA. And so that leaves a ton of room for bias. Why would you ever delay a treatment if you didn't have to? It's just not something that we do. So patients getting TXA later were probably different from those getting it earlier. Maybe they were more complex or they didn't have a free IV because massive transfusion was going on, or maybe the team just wasn't as organized. I think any of those confounders is much more likely to explain the harms of delay than the delay itself. But actually, I think if you go back and dig into the data, the whole idea that giving TXA earlier is probably not true. It was really only the CRASH-2 trial that just, that saw that association. But if you go through TITCH-2 and CRASH-3 and halt it, some of our other big trials, there was no association with time. And I think maybe my final point about time, if you are going to accept that subgroup, if you're going to accept that giving TXA earlier is better, then you must accept the opposite because TXA given after three hours increases mortality. So you can't simultaneously claim that giving TXA earlier is better and have that argument that we hear all the time that, oh, TXA is perfectly safe because TXA after three hours increases mortality in these associations. I think it's just an association. I think it probably isn't a thing at all, but that's something to keep in mind. If you really believe the time to TXA thing, then this is a deadly drug that could actually kill you if you use it in the wrong time frame. Yeah. You don't hear the trauma surgeons talking too much about how TXA can increase mortality after three hours. The other theme besides timing that I wanted to talk about was uh, the harms. So we, we did see a small increase from a small number in harms in some of these big trials. Ken, what can we say about harms in TXA? Is there anything definitive we can say? 
No, I don't think that there's anything definitive that we can say with regards to harms. What we can say in general about harms is harms are systematically underreported in randomized control trials. And then you can magnify that bias of underreporting a harm in a systematic review and meta-analysis. Because if you take trials that didn't report harm and put them together with other trials that didn't report harm, you can come to the conclusion erroneously that there is no harm when harm wasn't looked at. And even when they do look at harm in a randomized control trial, by the time they do put it into a systematic review, there are publications that show those systematic reviews don't report the harm. So there's this bias in medicine to report benefits, but to downplay or minimize or not report the potential harms as vigorously. So I think that that overall theme applies to the potential harms of TXA. And I have to say that it was the um, the HALT 2 that really got my attention. Everybody been saying, oh, well, you know, there's probably not much harm. And like I said before, it's not a very expensive drug, so why not? Um, but when I saw that that 0 0.4 to 0 0.8, I went, geez, you know, this was, they looked for it. They systematically looked for the harm. And if you look for something, often you'll find it. If you don't look for it, I can pretty much guarantee if you don't look for it, you're probably not going to find it. So one important tidbit when trying to analyze, and it is really hard here, uh, that I came across when reading about TXA, TXA actually interferes with the D-dimer assays. It causes false negatives. So it's quite possible that we're actually missing a fair amount of VTE because how do you diagnose VTE is you use a D-dimer. So that, that, that's one interesting tidbit here. I think the other thing for our listeners is we just need people to be consistent in the way they interpret this literature. So if you want to focus in on a subgroup, if you think that less than three hours is better, then you have to acknowledge the harm in after three hours. If you think that the disease-specific mortality is, is better, so if you think it's great that less people are dying due to bleeding, then you have to acknowledge that more people are dying from other causes. Uh, I think, again, all those associations aren't true, but I think we just need to stay consistent across, across the, the board. I think it, the most likely answer is that there's a very small increase in harm, less than 1%, but it's probably very similar to giving aspirin, for, for example. There's a small uh, increase in harms, which means we better make sure there's a benefit before, uh, before giving it, but we shouldn't be concerned about giving the drug if there is a benefit. All right. The, the third theme I wanted to talk about, we've talked about timing. We've talked about potential harms. The other thing that you had just alluded to, Justin, was a subgroup analysis. So Ken, can you just kind of remind us uh, what the problem with subgroup analysis is in terms of changing practice or not changing practice? Well, I think we have to be very careful not to overinterpret subgroups. Subgroups generally should be thought of as hypothesis generating, but it could be just statistical noise. And very infrequently do subgroups that have found some signal of benefit, you know, it's usually benefit, but found some signal, very few of those actually go on to get a properly done trial to investigate it. And they say, oh, look, we have this large subgroup, let's say in this one trial, this must be the quote unquote truth. And you need to be very careful about over-interpreting that subgroup. There's a, there's a publication by Wallach et al., and that was in JAMA 2017. And it actually went back and pulled trials that reported a subgroup that 
that showed something was happening, something statistically significant was happening. Wow, there's something there. And they went, how many times was that replicated? And we've already said that replication is a big problem in medicine and in science in general. So they found that only one third of the time did the subgroup that showed potential benefit actually get investigated in a follow-up trial to confirm it. Now, Anton, I have got a question for you. What percentage of that one-third of the studies that they went to go and replicate confirmed the original subgroup? One percent. Oh, you're, 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 you're within one percent. Yes, it was zero. Zero percent of the studies. Zero studies were confirmed. Now, that doesn't make any subgroup that was analyzed in any of these trials correct or incorrect. But if you're like Justin and you want to go with pretest probability, it's very unlikely that A, that they will get investigated and B, that that will be confirmed. And way back, and what I mean by way back is 30 years ago, Yusuf in JAMA, 1991, stated that the overall trial results is usually a better guide to the direction of an effect in a subgroup than the apparent effect observed within a subgroup. That's a great explanation for why subgroups are problematic. One last thing I wanted to talk about before we get to our sort of clinical bottom line has to do with the mechanism of action of TXA. Now, we told you at the top of the podcast what the mechanism of action was, why is a mechanism of action important in how you interpret these trials? Justin? Yeah, so this is actually one of the more confusing aspects of these uh, trials, to me at least. So if you go back to that surgical literature, they suggest a decrease in blood loss, but there were not any important clinical changes. There was no change in mortality, nothing clinically changed. But then we get the flip coming with CRASH-2. So CRASH-2 saw a very important clinical outcome change in mortality, but actually, there was no change in the number of people who required transfusions or the total transfusions given. So if TXA didn't actually reduce objective measures of bleeding, how exactly did it prevent death due to bleeding? That's confusing. And then the same thing happened again in the women trial. The total estimated blood loss, the need for transfusions, the total amount transfused, they were all exactly the same in both groups. And yet they claimed that TXA reduced, quote, death due to bleeding. That's just really confusing to me. Now, it might be a fluke. We already said that subgroups and secondary analysis are very prone to error, and that's that's probably the most likely, but it might also mean that maybe we don't fully understand the mechanism of action of this drug, or it just might be further indication that the results of these trials are just not quite as robust as we've made them out to be. I think one of the things that comes into play is something that I'm trying to coin maybe as pathophysiological bias. So we see something we go, well, pathophysiologically, that, that should work. I mean, you know, it should help stabilize the clot and stop bleeding. So there's this rationale from pathophysiology that it should work. And I think I've learned some humility over the last 25 years of practice that the body is more complicated and smarter than me. And I don't understand it well enough to predict exactly how things will shake out. And so while it does make sense that if you're going to give an antifibrinolytic agent, that that should help stop bleeding, do the trial and interpret the results. Now, what we've seen 
in all the different segments and different types of bleeding and different clinical scenarios, Anton, it doesn't look like it does. And, and I think maybe the more the reason we bring this up is because way too often we do the converse. So here we see an actual important difference in crash two. And so we ignore all the, oh, it didn't actually change bleeding, but too often we see a change in bleeding and never take it to the next step. So I think it's important to know that you can have a change in all cause mortality without actually seeing the physiologic changes. But that means that you can have a change in physiologic stuff without getting the predicted all cause mortality change that we really care about. Yeah. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the pathophysiology just lined up perfectly with the primary outcome and all the subgroup analyses could be replicated and giant RCTs and the world would be a wonderful bloodless place. But Anton, then we wouldn't uh, have this <laughs> opportunity to do a 90-minute journal jam. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a five-minute right. journal jam. Yeah. Talking about timing, let's get to our clinical bottom line. So Ken, your clinical bottom line when it comes to actually using TXA for that next patient you see with some sort of bleeding, what are you going to do? So my bottom line is that it all depends, is my answer to any evidence-based medicine question. So it all depends. And I'm unlikely to be using TXA for most bleeding scenarios. And I'm certainly not going to be using it routinely. All right. And Justin, your clinical bottom line? Yeah, I think that's well said. I think the key, the key in going through all of these studies was to get that general sense. And I think these studies make it very clear that TXA is not a miracle cure. There's some indication that maybe it has a small physiologic effects, but when you look at the quality studies, the quality studies are much more negative than they are positive. And the sole exception is CRASH-2. Most of the benefit we're seeing is in terms of disease-oriented outcomes, and most of it's in small, low-quality studies. And so overall, when you sum the entire evidence together, it actually makes me wonder whether the CRASH-2 results are true results. So my, my personal feeling, informed by the totality of this literature, is that you know if we actually replicated CRASH-2, I, I think there's a high probability that it would turn out to be a negative trial. However, I think at this moment, the best available evidence points to using TXA in bleeding trauma patients. So clinically, I use TXA in the CRASH-2 patients, in the bleeding trauma patients. And that's basically it. I don't use it in isolated traumatic brain injury. I don't use it in spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage or subarachnoid hemorrhage. I don't use it in postpartum hemorrhage. I don't use it in GI bleeding. I have been using it for epistaxis, but that should probably change, although we discussed some uncertainty there. And then I think for all the other indications, there's some things that would be really important if we could stop some bleeding, but the science is just way too uncertainty to draw any kind of strong conclusions. I think in totality, TXA may have some very small effects, if any, uh, but it probably shouldn't be used routinely for any indication. Overall, I think the harms are probably very small, probably even smaller if we're using it topically, but we shouldn't overlook those harms because they're going to be there. So, you know, in these areas of absolute uncertainty, when you have to make a decision at four in the morning and nobody else is there to help you, I think maybe for some select bleeding cases when you can't control it by any other means and pressure is not working, it still may be reasonable to give TXA a try, a try while we're waiting for more research, but it's not going to be routine. It's not going to be first line outside of that trauma patient. And I still think we should replicate crash too. Yeah. I mean, for me, for the IV indications, it's kind of ditto. 
It's really just for the polytrauma patient. And then in the patient who's bleeding to death, when I'm throwing the typewriter at them, I'll throw TXA along with it. And then as a last resort, when just nothing else is working and you have you know nowhere else to turn, that's when I'll use TXA. In terms of the topical applications, my best guess at least is that the harms are probably so minimal that there I still might continue to give it a try. You know, the patient with hemoptysis where you can't have any source control and they're just waiting for definitive care, I think a bit of nebulized TXA is still worth a try with epistaxis, same sort of thing, gum bleeding, even though I fully recognize that the the literature really doesn't support that. I totally agree that routine use of TXA should should not be a thing anymore. And I think what we need to highlight there is what what Anton's doing there is evidence-based medicine as we really wanted to find it. We talk about evidence-based medicine through this entire episode as just literature, but that's only one third of evidence-based medicine. There are two other really important aspects. We also have to use your clinical judgment and you have to consider the values of the patient in front of you. And so, yeah, when the literature third of evidence-based medicine doesn't give us the answers, you got to use your your clinical judgment and you got to make a decision in, in the moment and nobody can fault you for that because you are the evidence-based medicine expert. Well, that was pretty awesome in that we were able to pack in pretty much every important concept about evidence-based medicine into one podcast. <laughs> like <laughs> that was actually uh, pretty amazing. It's a long podcast, but we were we did pack in a heck of a lot of really important concepts there. Thank you both very much for your really amazing insights into these aspects of EBM. The TXA was a perfect opportunity to discuss them. I do want to thank Rory Spiegel, our co-host for Journal Gym for the past few years for all his amazing contributions to EM cases. Uh, He's decided to step back from Journal Gym for a little while to concentrate on his clinical work. So uh, if you do see Rory, make sure you thank him for all his amazing contributions. And uh, thank the two of you. Justin and Ken, that was wonderful. Cheers. Have a good one. Love jamming with you. 